James chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 13. He says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. All right. Now, that probably sounds familiar to most of you. If you were here last week, that's the section that we covered last week. And I spent most of my time on those last two verses, verses 19 and 20, in an effort to try to lay a foundation for the rest of it. Um, if you recall, in verses 19 and 20, what James is doing is he's giving his final thought. He's signing off. You know, they didn't have word processors in the day, so he had to get all his thoughts in. There was no cut and paste and copy and edit and all that mess. So if he had the thought, he had to get it in. And this is that, that final thought is, I cannot seal this letter up without getting this in there. He's got to get this one last point on the paper before he seals it up and sends it off to the church. And he, he tells us in this last couple of verses about our responsibility to bring back the one who has wandered from the truth. Do you remember that? We know from the teachings of Paul in 1 Timothy and from the teachings of John in John's second letter, 2 John, that if you condone and support or encourage your brother's sin, then you become a partaker of that sin, which is why James tells us to bring back the one who has wandered from the truth. Don't join him. Don't go with him. Bring him back. Bring back the one and you'll save a soul from death. When you encourage your brother's sin, you become a partaker in it. And what's more than that, you do violence to the witness of the church. But if we stand up for what is righteous, and we have those hard conversations with our wayward brothers and sisters, and the Bible teaches us that we reap a harvest of souls. Isn't that what James says? You bring back a sinner from wandering and save a soul from death. These conversations can be very difficult because we worry about offending. We worry, maybe even more than about offending, we worry about what they're going to think of us. We worry about being called a hypocrite and a hater. The culture in the world that we live today has twisted and it has perverted things to such a degree that all notions of holiness and righteousness have been turned up on their heads. What is considered virtuous by the world, by culture, isn't virtue at all. And what is truly virtuous is considered by culture and the world to be wicked and hateful. But what does the Scripture say? We should rather please God than man. 
To that end, I'm going to take you through several places in the Bible where that declaration is made. And the purpose, my purpose in doing so, is to get you to come to a sense of the seriousness of it. Because as it is, I don't think in the church today, there is much weight pressed, placed on the idea that we ought to please God and not man. On the idea that God is our final arbiter of right and wrong, on righteousness and wickedness, and not man. On the idea that it is God's glory that we ought to seek, and not the glory from man, because seeking the glory from man is enemies with God. Instead, we think if we're happy with people, if the world is happy with us, we must be right with the Lord too. And that, I cannot tell you how deeply antithetical that is to Scripture. So from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So you trust in man, you make flesh your strength, your heart turns away from the Lord. Proverbs, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whosoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. In John's gospel, Jesus made this a, a salvation issue. In John 5, 44, he was talking to the Pharisees and he said, How can you believe? How can you have faith? How is it possible for you to believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You're worried about pleasing man. How can you even believe when you're worried about pleasing man? In John chapter 12, Jesus describes how, no, uh, yeah, he describes how many of the leaders of the time, the Pharisees and religious leaders, that they actually believed the message of Jesus. But they would not confess the message of Jesus, or they wouldn't confess their belief in Jesus because they were afraid that the Pharisees and other leaders would put them out of the synagogue. And so in John chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus says, They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And do you remember what Jesus said when we are ashamed of Him? Mark 8, 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If you're ashamed of me before men, Jesus will be ashamed of you before God. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, For am I now speaking, or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So according to Paul, seeking the approval of man is not compatible with being a servant of Christ. Amen. You see this a theme running here? Let's keep going. Acts chapter 5. You, you remember this story. Peter and the other apostles, they've been put in prison because they preached Jesus. 
And that night, the Holy Spirit came and supernaturally released them from prison. And so the very next morning, where did they go? They went straight back to the temple and the synagogue, and they began preaching Christ, even though the very day before they had been arrested and put in prison. So what happened? The, the Pharisees, they went to look for him in prison, couldn't find him, and said, where are these guys? And somebody comes running and tells them, these guys that you put in prison, they're back at the synagogue preaching Jesus. And so they grabbed them, brought them before the council for another trial. And they said, we told you, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus. We told you, things, bad things are going to happen to you. We'll imprison you. We're going to harm you. Do not preach in his name anymore. And what was their answer to the Pharisees, to the leaders? Well, he tells us in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they said, we must obey God rather than men. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, verse 4, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul equates the spreading of the gospel with not pleasing man, but pleasing God. Amen. And why do we worry about pleasing God? Because He's the one that tests the heart. Man doesn't, God does. It's God who tests the heart, so it's God who we must please, not man. All that. And yet we get so bound up in worrying about what others think about us. So bound up that we forsake the glory of God in pursuit of the glory of man. We forsake the approval of God in order to be approved by man. We ought to be jealous for the Lord and jealous for His great name Amen. and jealous for His glory in the world. And I mean righteously jealous. The way the Lord is jealous over His church or His children. The way a husband is jealous for his wife. The way a parent is jealous for his children. We want what's best for them. We want to protect them and preserve them. We want to preserve their modesty and their witness. Husbands, if you're not jealous for your wife's modesty and her witness, you are asking for trouble. Amen. Amen. Parents, if you're not jealous for your children's modesty and their witness, you are asking for trouble. And I ask you this morning, are you jealous for the Lord's great name? Are you jealous for His house? Are you jealous for His witness and the witness of His house in the world? This past Wednesday, we had, a, I thought, a great discussion on church discipline and the role that church discipline plays in the witness of the church and the rationale for why would a church want to take someone, one of its members, through disciplinary action. It is clear from the Scripture that there is a twofold purpose for church discipline. When I say church discipline, I mean the formal process of, of calling a brother who is wayward, who is in willful sin, or maybe even ignorant sin, but calling that brother or sister to repentance. And then if, if for some reason that brother or sister does not repent, refuses to repent, then eventually the Bible teaches that we are to expel them from the fellowship 
to remove the hand of fellowship from them. You, you can no longer take communion with us. I can't, I can't shake hands with you and call you brother anymore. I can't affirm that you believe in Christ because you reject the truth. That's what church discipline means. The Bible teaches us that this is done in order that the wayward person would see the error of his ways and turn back to God in repentance. The idea is that he'll miss the fellowship of the believers and he'll long to return to the fellowship. So that means that the fellowship of the believers ought to be something that's precious. That we ought to be iron sharpening iron. That we ought to be hand holding hand. That we ought to be encouraging one another and admonishing one another in love. This is to be unique from what happens out there. And when you are denied it, when it is deprived of you, after having tasted it, it ought to be bitter. You ought to want, oh, I miss it. I want to come back. What must I do to come back? Well, brother, here's what needs to happen. You need to come to repentance. That's the whole point of church discipline. That's the whole point of calling the wayward brother who's weighed straight away from the truth, calling him back, is to bring him to a place of repentance to save his soul from death. There's a reason that Christians, and Christian churches in particular, have the poor reputation of being hypocritical. It's because we are not jealous for the witness of the church. We'll not have the difficult conversations with our brothers and sisters who have wandered from the truth. Instead, in order to not offend, or in order to not upset the very delicate and false balance that must exist to support someone living in willful sin and yet still calling him brother, we choose to stay quiet. Well, that's his problem. He'll deal with it. That's her problem. She'll deal with it. So we just let them drown. Or worse yet, and this happens more and more often than you would care to like or care to admit, we coddle them. We provide support and a comfortable place for their sin to grow and take root. Are you uncomfortable this morning? I see some people squirming. Good. <laughs> This is exactly what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 when he, when he said, there is one among you who is actively involved in a sin that is not even named among the Gentiles. And y'all are celebrating it. You know, he, he had already passed judgment on the one who was in sin. But then when he talked to the, the other members of the church, what he told them was that I'm, you, you guys are wrong because you're celebrating it. You, you have a belief that is in error. And you are celebrating and enabling this sin to take root. You become partakers of it. The Bible teaches that, that when we coddle that kind of, when we coddle sin, willful sin, when we make a warm and comfortable place for it to, to flourish, we become partakers of that sin. In modern legal terms, it means that we are an accessory to the crime. Amen. Amen. Let me just 
by way of example or illustration, let's say that you are a person who does not want to murder anyone. And I realize that's not much of a stretch because presumably none of us here want to murder anyone. Not really. That's just not something that we're, that's not a line that we're willing to cross. I don't want to murder somebody. But you uh, provide the means and you provide the support for someone else to do the dirty deed. You, you don't pull the trigger, but you provide the, the means, the, the weapon, the, the money, the transportation necessary to do the job. Or you, you provide the support, and the, the encouragement, and the, the instruction necessary to do the job. Again, you, you haven't pulled the trigger yourself, but you're every bit as guilty of murder as the guy who does. You are an accessory to the crime. Do, do you remember David? What was David's great crime when he had Bathsheba's husband killed? What did he do? Did, did, he, did he shoot the arrow? No. No, but he created the situation on purpose, for the purpose of having her husband killed. And David was guilty of murder. He was an accessory to the crime. Well, that brings me all the way back around to where I wanted to focus our attention this morning, back in James chapter 5, looking at verse 16. On an individual level, like I said, the, the whole point of all of that, the point of church discipline, the point of going after the wandering brother or sister, the point is to encourage repentance. In James 5, 16, he tells us to confess our sins one to another. But let, let's back up a few verses because I want to get the whole picture. So we, we touched on these verses a little bit last week. Back in verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, it, it's clear just from that little, little couple, of verse, or couple of scriptures there that, that James places a very high premium on the importance and usefulness of prayer. Does he not? Just about in every situation in life, you ought to be praying. If you're suffering, pray. If you're, if you're rejoicing, praise, which is essentially a form of prayer. If you're sick, pray. In 1 Thessalonians 5, which we read this morning, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. In Luke 18, when Jesus gives us the parable of the persistent widow, do you all remember that parable? She kept banging on the guy's door. And he said, not because of anything that you've done, but because you just won't leave me alone, I'll, I'll give you what you want. He gives a parable of the persistent widow. And Luke tells us why he gives us that parable. And I'm quoting here, it was so that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Amen. It is impossible for you to be in your prayer closet or wherever it is that you go to pray, sitting down, kneeling down, whatever, devoting all of your attention to prayer all of the time. That is just... There's no way to do that. There's other responsibilities in the world. We've got to make a living, all that kind of thing. We have to live in the world. Um, but what Paul and Jesus are talking about is a persistent attitude of prayer, knowing that the Lord is always as close as the mention of His name. You can call on Him while He is near, calling on Him throughout the day for help, for faith, for strength, and, and, and for wisdom. I'm hesitant to say it like this because I don't, I don't want to sound new-agey. 
but I don't know how else to put it. It's like, it's like having a, a channel open in your thoughts all the time to the Lord for prayer. There are times when I'm, I'm having conversations with people and I'm literally having two different conversations in my mind at the same time. I'm talking to the person who's standing in front of me and I'm talking to the Lord in the background. I'm praying and I'm asking for wisdom in what I'm saying. Sometimes I'm asking for patience and gentleness in what I'm saying. I don't want to get bogged down too much in the mechanics of all that, but suffice it to say that the life that James describes here is one that is saturated by prayer. You will not have the strength to do what you need to do next if you aren't praying and communicating with the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Now, we covered that last week, the prayer of faith. We're told that the elders pray Obviously, their prayer is at work. But when James says that his sins will be forgiven, this leads me to conclude that the sick person's prayers are at work as well. Because I, I can't repent for you. I can only pray that you come to repentance. You must repent. You must seek forgiveness. I can't, I can't do that for you, and others can't do that for you. So I believe that James paints a picture here of the elders joining in prayer with the sick person, both for the healing of the body and ultimately, and most importantly, for the forgiveness of sins. So that in verse 16, this is where we get to it, he says, therefore, what's the whole point? Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. I think James cares very deeply about the well-being of believers. He spent the whole book, the whole letter, telling us how to live righteously. He cares about the widows. He cares about those who are outcast. He cares about those who are downtrodden. He said, don't, don't treat each other with partiality. So those of you who have it real good, don't be unkind to those who don't. Treat everybody the same way. Treat them with love. I think he cares about the well-being of believers. He cares deeply about your fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ. Look at his language, verse 15. The prayer of faith saves the sick, the Lord raises him up, and his sins are forgiven. That's the working of the prayer of faith. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Confess your faults and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Let me show you what he's doing here, or try to anyway. So James shows us the journey, which is logical, before he shows us the destination. The destination is that you pray as a righteous person and your prayers are, have power and effectiveness. That's the destination. The way we get there is to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other. If you want to pray as a righteous person, you want your prayers to have great power, then confess Amen. Amen. and pray. Confession and prayer. 
So bring the sin in your life out into the open with your Christian brother or sister. Seek accountability with somebody. Bring what is hidden into the light so that it can be confronted and killed. This is important to you because the opposite of what James says is also true. The prayers of an unrighteous person are weak and ineffective. Your prayer is hindered by unrepentant sin. Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns his ear from the law, from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face face from you so that he does not hear. The only way to deal with sin is to confess it. The only way to deal with sin is to confess it. No one goes to the Lord and says, I have nothing to confess. That person does not need the Lord. That person does not understand what Savior means. And I would say, therefore, that person is not redeemed. James is on to something here when he says to confess your faults to each other. There's something about confession to someone else, not just before God, but before your neighbor also. And here's why I say this. We can be really good at confessing our sin to God, but it not having any real impact on how we behave. Think about it. We can be really good at saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I hate that I did that. Please help me with that. Rid me of that. And then it not having any impact on you the next time temptation arises. We just go right back to it. There is a particular kind of strength that comes by trusting the Lord for forgiveness and also trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord working in you, and trusting the Lord working in others for forgiveness. There is a tangible accountability that comes from confession to each other. Did you know that you can corrupt your prayer? You can corrupt your confession to God by using it as a place to hide your sin rather than confronting it. You can tell me all day, oh, I I confess my sin to God when I pray. Yeah, I I confess to the Lord. And that's great. That's what we ultimately have to do. Because He's the arbiter of right and wrong. He's the arbiter of life and death. He's the arbiter of righteousness and wickedness. We must confess our sin before the Lord. But if you are continually confessing your sin in in prayer, and I'm going to put quotation fingers around confessing, and you, you keep coming back to that sin, then likely you're not confessing at all. What you're doing is concealing. 
you are anesthetizing the guilt of your own sin by what you are labeling as confession. Now, that's a hard truth. It's a very difficult truth. But it is very... There's a reason that James says to get this off your chest, to bring this out into the light with someone else. Because it is too easy to go in darkness under the guise of prayer, under the guise of confession, and then let the weight run off you and say, I've confessed, everything's good. Only to turn around and do it again. You haven't confessed anything, you've just concealed it. If you go the extra step though, if you're truly repentant, if you're truly contrite, and you lay your sin at Jesus' feet and cry out, Lord, save me from this, and then you go and in sincerity and humility confess to your brother or sister in Christ, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling here. I've laid it out before God, but I need to bring it into the light. I need help and accountability. I'm telling you, there is a strength and a righteousness that comes from that that is very difficult to ignore the next time temptation rears its ugly head. This is why James challenges us to confess our faults to each other. He wants us to pray as righteous people with power and effectiveness. You cannot pray as a righteous person with willful sin, unconfessed sin. Let me go one further and tell you that sin begins in the heart. James teaches this way back in, in, in was it chapter 4, I think? James teaches that sin begins with our desires, the things that we want, the beliefs that we hold. You can read Psalm 66, verse 18, and we know that our prayers are hindered when we love the things that God hates. The psalmist says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So when I love iniquity, that iniquity is the things that God's hate. If I love sin in my heart, I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not listen. I know I, I beat this drum often because it is important. But doctrine matters. It matters. What you believe matters. Who you think God is matters. Your confession of faith is so much more than a mere acknowledgement of Christ's existence. You know, Satan and all the demons of hell acknowledge Christ's existence. They don't know Him as Lord. Your confession of faith is so much more than just merely acknowledging Jesus. And that's where so much of Christendom is today. They acknowledge Christ, therefore they believe they're saved. I cannot tell you how many people are sitting in pews who are headed straight to hell. They don't know Lord as Savior. Amen. 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 Confession of faith is a, a worldview. It's a framework of thought. It's a pursuit of the heart. You cannot love God and also love the things that He abominates. You can't love God and bless what He curses. Watch at the divisions happening in major denominations today. Watch at the splits happening and what they're splitting over. 
Watch as megachurch after megachurch falls, as pastor after pastor falls, because they allowed the stain of the world. What did, what did Jude say? Hating the stain, hating the garment that is stained by the flesh. They allowed the stains of the world to, to stain the witness of the church. And when sin, when it takes root, it's death. James calls us back in chapter 4 to be, it tells us that if, if we are friends with the world, then we are enemies with God. And that is why he closes out his letter with, with a, a challenge to us, instruction to us to go after the wayward brother, to correct him in his sin, to save his soul from death. Because if we do otherwise, if we ignore it, oh, what kind of people are we to watch someone drown and not do something to help? And worse yet, if we encourage it, if we celebrate him in his wickedness or her in her wickedness, we support them in, in that wickedness, it is not only death to his soul, but it is death to our own soul as well. I tell you, the Lord will not bless a fellowship like that. Amen. He will crumble. He will tear this thing down brick by brick before he'll allow that to happen. You cannot be friends with sin and also with God. So James tells us to get it out of you, to bring it into the light. So one of the beautiful things about preaching through a scripture, preaching through text, verse by verse, is I don't, I don't get to determine week by week the topics that I bring up. Amen. I let the scripture do that. So I was always going to preach this message this week. I was always going to preach the message I preached last week. And even Wednesday night when we talked about church discipline, we were always going to do that. So if this sits hard with you, don't blame me. Here's the thing, though. Jesus, He stands ready to forgive. Amen. Amen. Oh, and isn't He able? Isn't he able? And because we are the bride of Christ as the church, because we love him as our husband, and because we, we, we seek after him as, as the mark of the high calling of God in our lives, because we want to be transformed into the likeness of him, because we want to live according to what he says, because we love him, and he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments then just as much as Jesus stands ready to forgive, so does the church, who are your family under the banner of Christ. Amen. We stand ready to celebrate repentance with you. I told you that last week. You know, in a lot of circles, repentance is frowned upon because if you come out and you say, I have this problem, then they start labeling you, and, and we should never do that. That's, the, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit at work. That's what He does is He convicts us. And he shows us where we've gone astray. And praise God if he's done that for you. Let the world know it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Hallelujah. Amen. We'll celebrate that with you. Amen. We'll celebrate repentance with you. We are ready as a church to come alongside and support you in your walk towards Christ-likeness. That's who we are. Amen. Amen. That's what we do. We can't compromise on these kinds of things. But we love every sinner, amen? amen? 
I think where we're going next is Jude. You know, James talks about the life of the Christian individually. And, and then he, he finishes out with this, this wonderful um, challenge to us. There's not even a doxology here. There's not even a, you know, now unto him who is able to do. There's not even that there. He just ends it with, go get the guy who's sinning. Go get the brother who's messed up. Don't let him wallow in sin. Don't let him drown. Protect the witness of the church. Save your souls. And then, and then James, or then Jude comes along, and he talks about the, the corporate body, how we live in, in, in fellowship with one another, and what we do about those, you know, those false teachers that creep in together. And so I think we're going to James, or Jude next. Um, if the Lord's willing. We always want to say, if the Lord's willing. Amen. Let me pray for you, and then I'll get you out of here. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I love you. Your word is holy, it is righteous, and good. And Father, I pray that we are all, um, not just convinced, but Lord, but convicted um, to walk righteously before you, to walk uprightly before you. That we are convicted to bring things that are hidden out into the light, that we trust not only you with our, our forgiveness, Lord, but that, that we trust you working in others who are our brothers and sisters under the banner of Christ, that we trust that and we have faith in that, Lord, and that we can be a righteous person when we pray. Lord, let our prayers be effective and, and powerful, Lord, because we have combated the sin and you have given us every means to do so. Father, I pray that you send us out from here blessed, that you protect us as we are out in the world and that you bring us back here safely at the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.